Welcome to Once and Future Authors, Changing Lives One Book at a Time. I'm Stephanie Larkin, an author, independent publisher, and book coach. And each week we will be discussing processes and strategies to get your book finished and published and meet authors and publishing experts to tap into their experiences and expertise. There is one book out there that can change your life, and that is the book you write. So welcome aboard. This podcast is produced by Red Penguin Books, an independent publishing company working with authors of all genres. Whether you have a manuscript all ready to go, a book still stuck in your head, or perhaps even hundreds of handwritten sheets of loose leaf shoved in a drawer, visit redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephanie, and tonight we're going to be talking about medicine and technology, specifically organ transplants. I am so thrilled to be joined by a special guest and friend who has undergone not just one but two heart transplants and is now the best-selling author of Grateful Guilt, the book about the experiences he's had with these transplants. So please welcome friend and survivor Stephen Taibbi. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for making it this long because you know how every time I call you, I worry. Make sure you pick up the phone, okay? Yes. <laughs> I'm still here. I'm, still I'm glad here. you're still here. And you know when I booked you a few weeks in advance, you know. Yeah, you weren't sure I'd be here then. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so you've been through the gamut, two heart transplants. Right, and actually way more than that. When I was a child, I had uh, two open hearts too. Um, actually, I had my first three surgeries on the day I was born. Wow, 30 years ago they were doing surgery? 30, 32. <laughs> but, um, you know, but I had, I had those surgeries when I was born, um, but they were really indicators of, of what was going to happen later. And um, when I was five, I had an open heart for uh, what they call ASD repair, atrial septum defect, uh, which was commonly known as a hole in the heart. And Is it really a hole in yes, the Yes, it's a hole in the atriums, wow. in the wall between the atriums. Okay. So um, then um, when they went in, and back then, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the survival rate was um, 50% at that point. Just surviving the surgery. The surgery back then. That right. We're talking 1958. Uh, right. And um, So the condition itself was bad enough, but just to survive the surgery. Most children didn't live through it. Wow. And... Um, and did you know and, that? And, well, I knew I was in a lot of trouble. My parents wouldn't say that. But then when they went in, they found out that I had another hole and I had a, um, an anomalous um, venous malformation, which meant that the vein was going in the wrong way. And so they couldn't fix everything at once. I mean, they barely knew how to fix one thing then without killing you. Right, right. And they, <laughs> they sent me home weak and uh, waiting for my parents to um, get me stronger so I could try a second operation and um, when they did my second operation to that point no one had ever lived through two so I, was, I became the first one to live through two open heart surgeries for ASD repair over at St. Francis Hospital with Dr. Maddox. Go St. Francis. Go, go St. Francis. Um, and <laughs> I, the famous Dr. Imagine. Balboni was his assistant back then. <laughs> you know? I, I can't imagine I mean your fear did you know going into that second operation that no one ever survived the second one? I didn't know it that way. Right. But I got last rites, and I didn't get him on the first one. And you don't send a Catholic kid, give him last rites without telling him that. They pretty much figure it out. Right, right. You know? Yeah. you know what that means. And the priest was crying, so that was another hint. Oh, my God. Yeah. How old were you? So I was six. And that was, you know. But, um, and when I got through that, then they were saying to my parents, well, miraculously he made it through this, but um, he'll, never get, he'll never get past ten. And you are obviously past 10. I got you know, yeah, I look at two. And, <laughs> and when I got past 10, they said, um, well, he made it past 10, but he's never going to get out of his teens. And, and when I was 16, um, my doctor, a new doctor by that time, he and I had become very close. And um, I don't remember if it was him or my mother, but my, my mother is a nurse, and she knew that she, she told me the truth all along. And she knew that she couldn't lie to me because I could always figure it out. And um, she told me that um, I had a year to live. And the doctor and I talked about it, and I was in real trouble. And um, 
So I, I went in for a, a, a minor procedure that could have killed me. But Everything could have killed you. Right, but I got through it. And they put me on a drug. And the drug at the time was considered like the newest, best thing. Right. But uh, one in every 10,000 people is allergic to it. And I happened to be one of those people. I never win a lottery ticket, but I won that one. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to have won a lot of lottery tickets. Yes, before. actually I have. <gasps> and, um, <clears throat> and it gave me on my 17th birthday a heart block incident that almost killed me. And I had the whole out of body You've had experience. a whole lot of almost killed me. I have a lot of them. I if, I told one, you, though, if I told you how many times I've almost died, you'd be, you'd be shocked. And um, Now, this one at 17, I'm sorry, you said you had an out-of-body experience. Mm -hmm. That was your first and only out-of-body experience. Actually, no. I had one on my second operation when I died on the table. At age six. six. But I didn't realize what it was I, right. I, until my mother told me what had happened years later that I had died on the table, and then the whole thing made sense. Um, but um, then I made it through that. They actually, when I went to the hospital with that, the doctors told my parents to make arrangements. They didn't think I'd make the night. Oh, my God. And um, I did. <laughs> <laughs> because you did. Because I used my strategies and I fought like heck. Good for you. And, um, I mean, really, that's what it boils down to. And that's uh, really what I wrote about is, I mean, it's up to you. Yeah. It's, I mean, to a point. I'm right. Something's no, no. going to kill all of us. But yes. it's up to you. And a lot of times, if if you're going to make it or not. No, all the doctors ever said all through my life was he's a fighter. And um, even when I was five and six, I was using strategies to stay alive. And because I figured out where I was and what was happening. And, you know, um, and so I got through that thing when I was 17. And then the doctor said, well, you got through this. My doctor said to me, you got through this, but I don't think you're going to hit 30. So um, I was in high school at this time. And at at that point in my life, I just went nuts. I was like, oh, yeah, I only have the, fine. I started doing what I called chasing life with a hammer. Right. And I just had a great time. I still did fairly well in school, considering how little of it I went to. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I mean, School I did. children at home, you did not hear that <laughs> statement. <laughs> my mother and I had a, had a whole thing of, um, of um, in that year before when they had given me a year, right. I was, I was, taking so much time off from school, and my mother was so tired of writing notes, because my mother and I both thought I had more important things to do than sit right. in the classroom. So she was writing notes for me, and I got caught. And that's a whole story. That's in the book, too. I, but I, I understand that, though. You're given a year to live. What do you want to do with it? Right. But I was, and I didn't tell any of my friends. And, um, and then when I got through that, and I told my best friend, he got mad at me, really mad at me. He made me promise him that I would tell him. And then there you are, you know, when I was in my 30s, I was telling him, hey, Joe, I have a year to live, you know. So it was like, um, but it's, it's a decision. Everything's a decision in life, really. You know, it's funny. Yeah. I, I, I entered into this conversation to talk about, in a sense, medical advances and things that are out there. But your words are so striking about it being up to us. I mean, yes, medicine... Thankfully, I'm sure since the time of yeah, the I'm first Yeah, I'm sure the doctors had surgery, a lot to do with why I'm here. <laughs> we're not discounting that. Right. And, and, and certainly medicine, I mean, from, from when you were five years old to how they do things now is just from, you know, it's just unbelievable when the I was, advances. When I was a little kid, the needles were the size of my forearm. And, yeah. the, and they were made of glass, and they and they, they had an autoclave across from my bed. You know, I mean, they used, reused everything yeah. all the time, and yeah. and you know, there were no televisions, there was no anything. You, yeah, you, it was a totally it different. It was a totally different. You just lay in bed all day long, every day. Right. And 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 they drew blood by using lancets, and and, and, and they really hurt. And, and the recovery rates. I mean, I think about this is certainly not an open heart surgery, but you know. My dad just had a hip replacement at, you know, 11 in the morning, and they were sending him home at 7. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You know, it's just, it's just amazing how things have changed. And medically, from that first open-heart surgery at 5 to your most recent transplant, which was three years ago, mm -hmm. uh, the entire operating arena, the, all of the tools they're using, all of the little beeps and boops and boops, 
completely different. Absolutely, completely different. Nowadays, I would I, I could look when I watch it, a television show or, or a movie, and I look at the at the uh, IV pumps. I could tell what year it is. <laughs> <laughs> you could be one of those people on the set who says, "Nope, nope, that's not the right I one." I could to be use. really. Yeah, a props director, you know, yes. the set whole thing. But even amidst all that technology, I do love what you're saying about it being so much a decision. Now, yes. Doctors, obviously, and, and kudos to, to St. Francis Hospital and those doctors who are and doing Columbia amazing. And Columbia Press and Cedar sinai Fantastic. Thank you. Mm. Thank you for all of those. Um, but I love that you're, you're seeing how much our own attitudes, your own attitudes, and passing on to our viewers that it really does matter what you think is going to happen, what you want to happen, what you're going to make happen. It really makes a difference, and that's it, empowering for people. It absolutely it, to see you sitting here, I think, and to hear that message is incredibly empowering to people. Yeah, and it, and it's really frustrating to me, and I'm really not the best person with this. Um, when I get to some, when somebody comes up to me and they have this give up attitude, and it's all woe is me. I almost just want to punch them. I'm sure you do after what you've been through. I mean, you know, they haven't been through a fraction of what I've been through. Right. And they're, they're in the corner, you know, sucking their thumb crying. And, and it, it really enrages me because, you know, you have this life it's given to you. You know, do something. Right. Fight. You know, yeah. get yourself better. And, and, and then stand up in the world and, and do something and I be something and, li and live your life. You know? And you are exactly the person to be able to tell them that because of... Yeah, nobody would have wished these horrible experiences on you, but because of them, you can say that to people. And well, you know, I'm gonna be. This is really something. Um, uh, I really believe in God. I'm, I'm not the most religious person in the sense of a organized religion, mm -hmm. but I think I'm one of the most religious people I know in my sense. Um, but um, you have to have. A constant attitude of gratitude you know if you're in this country you should have an amazing attitude of gratitude that yeah. you're not in some real poor third-world country yes. where you're starving to death and oh, where yeah. there's no medical care I, I mean I right the right we, off there you right. should be I think you're right I you think should we be have no idea right they have no idea and and I think that everything that happened to me well you know if you're a Star Trek friend you know what a, a holodeck is yes I believe this I, is God's out holodeck, <laughs> and I believe that each one of us has our, God's own program for the holodeck, and this is mine. And all the things that have happened to me were supposed to happen to me, and I'm supposed to live through them if I can, and one day I'm not going to be able to, but that'll be all part of the thing. But I all think that everything's part of the plan. So, um, you know, people... People do not really genuinely believe in an all-powerful God, but I do. I believe in, I mean, he can't be contained in the church. He can't be contained, you know, 200 miles up. He's everywhere in, he's in this entire infinite universe and beyond that we don't know about. I mean, that's an all-powerful God. And what happens to us, we're part of a tapestry, and we can only see what's next to us on either side, up and down from us, and from that, we can't see anything else, right? So... We have no idea what God's plan is, and yeah. it's, um, it's, it's wrong for us to curse at what happens to us. You're supposed to be grateful in all things, right. including the bad. That's the trick is, 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 the trick, is including the bad. You just have to say, okay, you wanted me to, this, you're putting me through this for a reason. I may not know what it is. I may never learn about it until I die. But there's a reason why I'm doing this. But I can say to you that the man I am today, good or bad, is because of all these experiences. That's, what, that's who's made me who I am. Absolutely. Now, you're talking about the word grateful. The title of your, your book, Grateful Guilt. Can you talk to us a little bit about grateful and guilt? I used, there was a, 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 um, a transplant organization um, called Transplant Speakers International. We went defunct a few years ago, but we were around for 16 years, and I was the vice president. And um, we uh, used to teach, we went to the various OPOs in the country, that's an organ procurement organization, that's where you get your organs from in each state, in each area of the state. Um, 
And there were 56 of them and 53 of them were our clients. And um, I spoke all around the country teaching people how to, how to tell their stories. But when I had my first transplant, the guilt of somebody had to die for me to be alive, and then everybody gives you the platitudes. Well, they were going to die anyway. They didn't die for you, blah, 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 blah. But they never told you, they never acknowledged that crushing a lot, to a lot of people, survivor's guilt, hmm. you know? And you'd go to, I'd go to the, you know, um, to the president of the OPO in New York at the time um, and tell her this, and she'd go, oh, he didn't die for you. I mean, they just didn't acknowledge it. Right, right. We had a program called um, Sorrow for Joy, and it was for the family members of, um, of donors. And the, you know, the elephant in the room, like when you're at a cocktail party and your daughter's no longer there, right? right? And that's the elephant in the room, and you know how to deal with that. Yes. So we had that. So I said to um, the president, Frank Frank Bedino, who um, also had had two heart transplants. We had our second ones at around the same time. Um, that we should do a program on this. And so I designed the program. He said yes. I designed the program. We we worked on it together, and we called it Grateful Guilt because organ recipients are immensely grateful. Sure. But we also have guilt. And the first time we did one of those at an OPO, it was the OPO, one of the OPOs in um, South, Carolina, South Carolina, I believe, is where we, um, we um, launched it. There was a guy there who, big hunk guy, man, man, guy, who he, sped, he said five words in that workshop, and he was on his hands and knees bawling like a baby because the guilt was so big and nobody would listen to us. Oh. Now, they, they, I don't know why they did that with organ transplants. Like, if a woman lost her breast due to um, cancer, right. and she said, I'm mourning the loss of my breast, everybody would have gone, oh, that's too bad. Oh, I'm so sorry for you. That must be tough. Right. But they didn't do that with us. But now, since we brought that program out, well, across the country, it's, been, it's being acknowledged. And, and, but it's, we're the ones who did that. Right. And I'm saying that deliberately because there are people trying to take credit for it from us. So I'm sorry. Yeah, that was no, transplant speakers absolutely. that did it. But, uh, <coughs> you know, for someone who is not in those shoes, this is very eye-opening to hear about the survivor's guilt that you have from this. And I'm sure, because transplant speakers was addressing it overwhelmingly, positive re response, because this is the experience. This is the common thread that so many people have. Perhaps even, you know, viewers watching saying, yes, yes, that's me too. Yeah. And that's when, and when we opened up the program at every one of these things, we had, we had grown men and women sobbing because they could finally not feel guilty for feeling guilty. Yes. Yes. You're right. Well, that's, that's just a huge weight for somebody to be able to share that and acknowledge and say, yes, this is an authentic feeling. You know, if, if people keep saying to you, you shouldn't feel that way. Yeah. They wouldn't do that to a woman who had cancer. Right, and that's the thing that always you know got my you know got me got me because um, I didn't think that was right. You know, do organ transplant recipients know the people who or know the name or anything about the donor? I was told the name of my first uh, donor. Um, I learned his name was La was Lawrence. I learned that he was um, he was an African American. I learned that he had children, but I didn't know how many. And I learned that he, he fell down a flight of outdoor stairs in the metropolitan area. Oh. So, you know, probably concrete or, stale, or steel. Um, but that's all I ever learned about him. Right. But knowing his name was, was huge. Was it? Yeah. It was because I could connect with him. We set a place for him at every holiday. Did you? Yeah, we did that. And, I love um, that. What? I love that. And then when I was giving him up to get the new heart, because they were just going to throw him on a waste pile. And I, w I was like, no, I want, I want some kind of clergy there to bless him when he comes out of me. And they did it. Oh, wow. And um, now my new donor, they wouldn't tell me the name. Really? And um, I forget how I found out about Lawrence, but I, I did find out. Right. But they made it really strict on how you can't. Really? Yeah. And because and, they're afraid of stalking. So. Um, I mean, I guess I get that. But well, what I you're describing with Lawrence and your uh, your inclusion of him 
in your family and at your table and at his last moments is just so beautiful that I'm heartbroken that they've changed things. Well, they, um, I got my, my second heart out in L.A. at Cedars, which is in Beverly Hills. Okay. And um, the OPO there, um, One Legacy, is probably flat down the best OPO in the country. I mean, because I've been to all the OPOs almost. And One Legacy is like, they're the model for everybody. They're, they're amazing. But they have these rules. And all the LPOs have these rules. I forget how I found out about Lawrence exactly. Um, but One Legacy wouldn't budge. And it was killing me because I needed to communicate with him. Yes. I needed to connect with him. And then, um, and of course, you write your letters. And I wrote my letter, and then I wrote another one. And then a year ago, I got a phone call from One Legacy. The family wants to respond to your letter. Is that okay? Wow. And like, I, I was like. So you write letters and you don't know where they're going. You're yeah, you're not allowed to give any personal information of okay. who you are, where you are. You know, um, they didn't even want me to tell them that I was from New York. Okay. And um, they just wanted to be, right. you know, thank you for saving my life, basically. Right. Which is what I, you know, was wanted to do. I wanted to let them know their gift wasn't unappreciated. Right. Um, and in doing transplants, because you'd be amazed how many people don't write the letter. You'd be amazed at how many donor families I have met who said, I just want to know if they're thankful. But I could tell them that most of the time that's because the donor is so guilty and so grateful. They can't come to write the letter. Okay. It's impossible for them. It's never good enough. It's not that they're not So they're throwing it out and it never gets, never gets sent. Right. Some, don't, some are, just, are just dopes and they don't even <laughs> care, but that's really rare. But right. um, that's often why, so if there's a donor family out there wondering why they never got th thanked, I could s probably tell them 80% of it is probably that. Guilt. Guilt and it's not good enough. Right. The letter's not good enough. But I got this letter and I said, yeah, and then, then, then it, it, there was this back and forth and then, then we had the back and forth on, on um, uh, messaging, what is a, on a phone? It's called? Um, texting? Texting, we had to text. Okay. And then it was like, oh, do we talk? And we set up a time to talk and, and I spoke to, the, to my donor's mother. Wow. And then last year we went out there and met them. <gasps> and that happens only, letters get answered only 3% of the time. Really? Really. So I was very lucky because I got to find out his name. I've seen pictures of him. Right. I met his family. I actually held his ashes. You know, it's really, that was really, that was an emotional day. Yes, but I can't even imagine. The, the family was amazing. Right. But, you know, the thing about donors is that, okay, you want to thank the person who donated. And in a lot of times it's because they've directed it. Right. But a lot of times people don't direct. And it's the family that makes the decision. And in this case, it was his mother who made the decision. And he wasn't, he had never talked about being a donor. Brilliant. And she just told me, she just said, it just seemed like the right thing to do. And so I, I believe he donated his liver, his two kidneys, and his heart. Right. You know, um, <clears throat> so there are more people alive today. Um, because of that decision because his mother of, made. Because of David, his name is David Jacobo. Um, and there are people alive today because of him. Wow. You know, um, and, but I'm alive today <coughs> because his mother said yes. And that's an important thing to remember. And I think, you know, not only is it important for people to sign up as donors, like you'd said, and for, in the cases that they don't, for the families to make that decision, I think unfortunately sometimes the opposite happens too, that the family could you know, not let things... Happens all the time. Does it? It happens, all, it happens I, because of my work with TSI, transplant speakers. Um, I've met people who are um, um, what they call requesters. They're the ones who ask the families. Because okay. a nurse or a doctor can't ask. It's a conflict of interest. interest they have okay. to have a, a, a third party okay. ask. And um, she's told me that, you know, people, they, they, he, they'll have a donor card in their hand. You know, your right. son, your daughter, whoever it is, Wanted to, be a donor, wanted to be a donor. No, you're not cutting them up. <gasps> so they, they actually take away that person's last wish. That's terrible. It is terrible. It's terrible 
for the lives that could have been saved, but it's terrible, like you said, that it was that person's last wish. Yeah. That's the part that really gets me, is you're denying them their last wish. Why are you doing that? Yeah. You know, but people are people. People are people. I, I certainly hope through, I know you, you speak extensively for, you know, organ transplant in general, um, people dealing with catastrophic situations. I hope through all of that, through your book, that, that different things can change. There's one thing I'd like to make sure I, I get this out. Whether you want to be a donor or you don't want to be a donor, that's up to you. Right? I'm, I'm not going to force anybody. Right? Right. But whatever that decision is, please tell your family so that at that moment, if that moment unfortunately ever has to happen, you don't put them in <coughs> the agony of trying to figure it out. Right. You know, and that's if a great takeaway for us. Is that you know it is it's your own personal decision what you want to do. Right. But please spread the word so that those people who are surrounding you at that moment. Yeah, they know what your last wish wish wishes. Right. So if a requester comes up to them and they say, "Would you like to be a Would you like him or her to be a donor?" and they they're informed, then they'll say, "No, he actually said he didn't want to be." Fine. That's the end of the subject. Right. And if they come up to them and they say, "Would you?" and they'll say, "Yeah, he he or she said they really wanted to be." Right. But they, then they they're, they're armed with the knowledge that they need at that moment, and they're in enough they're in enough torture of, and pain that they don't have to struggle through that too. Yeah, I think that's a fabulous. You know, if there's anything that I'd like to leave our viewers with, we have just about one minute. That about sharing with your family is so vitally important. Um, what you mentioned about m making a decision to survive. Yes. Making a decision to fight is so vitally important. Do you have anything else you want to share with us before? Just if you're ever told that you're catastrophically ill. Yes. Do not. Okay, you want to cry for, for four minutes? Go ahead. <laughs> no, really. You want to cry for four or five minutes? Go ahead. When you're done that, you're done. Now you put on your armor, you stand up, and you fight. And whether or not you, you survive, at least you went down swinging. Well, coming from you, those are inspirational words indeed. I certainly hope our viewers have gotten inspired by somebody here who is not just a survivor but a fighter. Thanks so much for joining us for Once in Future Authors. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Reviews help other interested listeners to find the show, so your review could launch new books every day. Thanks again for joining us, and happy writing. Once in Future Authors podcast. I'm Stephanie Larkin, and I am so thrilled to be joined today by poet Linda Dickman. Linda has written um, The Air That I Breathe, which if you haven't read it yet, this, this is a book that makes you breathe. Robes, The Art of Being Covered, and I don't even have a copy of Road Trip, but I am holding my breath to get it as a road tripper. So please welcome Linda Dickman. Linda, thanks for joining me. Such a pleasure to be here, Stephanie. Thank you for asking. Oh, my pleasure, and I can't get, wait to get my hands on Road Trip. Thank you for sending along a PDF, so at least I got a peek. <laughs> 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 I asked you on because you are absolutely one of my favorite poets. Well, alive ones, you know, because most of my favorite poets are not alive, so you're in a solo company there. <laughs> wow. Wow, thanks. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> and so many people want to write poetry and they get as far as you know roses are red violets are blue <laughs> and just try to fill in the blank but you actually write poetry what what made you start writing poetry did it did you just go further with the roses and red thing than anybody else <laughs> my father we spent a lot of time having dinner together as a family when i was growing up and my father loved to recite poetry from memory. And he, you know, if it was Joyce Kilmer, the, you know, trees, or, or if it was anything, he would, he, you know, nursery rhymes, um, things that he learned in school. He just used to, not only did he recite poetry and it was always from memory, he's, he recited Hiawatha. Wow. <laughs> That's yeah. a lot. Oh my gosh. Well, that was the time of the of the country and the you know school that you know in the in the 
late twenties, early thirties, that's what they were doing. They were making you memorize. But he also spoke in metaphors. He he would explain things to me and always use metaphors. So I would I took that on. And then my mother was a musician and she loved music and she loved lyrics and she especially loved Cole Porter. Oh my favorite. Uh, Linda, the clean lyrics, the dirty lyrics. She spoke in music and in dance, so we would dance in the kitchen, you know? And then in 1962, um, I went away, I was 10 years old, and, I, and my mother and father sent me to sleepaway camp in the High Sierras in California. And um, I started writing then, and I pretty much haven't stopped. And I wish I had my notebook from then, because I could tell you whether I was doing Roses or Red, but I, I just don't. <laughs> I, I just don't know what my first poem was. <laughs> oh my gosh. I did not know you were from California. Well, I'm not, but my dad was in the Navy and it, between the years of 1962 and 1965, he served on active duty in a little place called Point Magoo, mm -hmm. which is where they brought President Reagan's body into when he passed away. The, the Navy base was still operating. Okay. So it's okay. Um, between Los Angeles and Santa Barbara. Oh, very nice. Coast. And you got to go to summer camp in the High Sierras. That is so beautiful there. It was amazing. I can't even imagine one of the most beautiful parts of this country are the High Sierras. Yes. Absolutely stunning. I had a feeling you were going to tell me that one of your parents was a musician. <laughs> <laughs> My mother played the Hawaiian guitar. Really? Because she wanted to go to Hawaii from the time she could, from the time she learned about it. And so we did go. Uh, we did go. She went for the first time when we moved to California because it was so much closer. Of course. And my husband and I went for the first time in 1989, although he has camped on shores that are no longer available for camping. His family did road trips and they flew to to Hawaii and then road trip there. <laughs> oh, how wonderful. Yeah, I didn't think they drove there. <laughs> would have, they would have. <laughs> they, they absolutely would have. Well, you know, I always say about when you're choosing a genre to write in, that sometimes you get to pick, like I might wake up and decide I'm gonna write mysteries or something, but sometimes the genre chooses you and certainly poetry chose you, didn't it? I feel, you know, I really reflected on that question a lot. And I would say, yes, it did. Because it just is what, pick up my pen and sometimes I take meeting notes in rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> just to have fun with it, just what the heck. <laughs> Especially if it's a slow moving meeting, it's, <laughs> I've done it. <laughs> so Linda, if you and I are someplace in your doodling, I should take a look and maybe publish it. <laughs> Well, let me tell you what happened. I was sitting in church one Sunday I'm in, and I was in the choir and one of the kids was in the balcony and she said to her mother, mommy, what is Mrs. Dickman doing in the choir loft? She's writing. And her mother turned to her and said, maybe she's doing a crossword puzzle. And I thought, are you kidding me? I'm in church. <laughs> but anyway, I was writing down something the pastor had said on the bulletin and many, many, many of my poems started in the choir loft on the bulletin so yeah if i'm writing something down <laughs> yeah. if i'm church and people are, are taking notes i shouldn't presume it's a crossword puzzle is that what you're saying so you've really been a poet in your soul since birth for a long time for that, a long time that's just wonderful absolutely wonderful did you ever think about writing in a different genre or is it always poetry um, okay. Have I ever thought of it? Yes. I've written several manuscripts for children's books, but I didn't feel I was doing them justice. And now that I'm retired, I feel like I can revisit them. I have a separate, uh, container for those. Ooh. And there's, you know, simple things, you know, like what one is called, what do you do with a book? Um, what is called Memorial Day, because I couldn't find a good book on Memorial Day, so I wrote one and used that. Um, I had a teacher who came to me and asked me for a counting book that had to do with Thanksgiving, and we didn't have one, so I wrote one. So I do have 
I do have some picture books. I do believe that if I were to go in a direction, that would probably be the way I would go. Well, as a lifelong teacher, we thank you for going in that direction. Please do. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. And the greatest children's books, aren't they also poetry? I, I can't unequivocally say that because I am a, I am a visual auditory up to my ears in the, in the, whatever it is in the experience kind of a person. So if the, if the poetry is great, it's wonderful. If the illustrations complement it and it becomes a really good marriage, I'm happy and you never hear another word out of me except what I love. <laughs> if I pick up a book and the illustrations are great and the poetry is terrible, I will not read that to a kid again. Oh, unless I I'm using it as an example of bad poetry. <laughs> <laughs> or unless you rip the pictures out and use them in the classroom. <laughs> Rip? No, I, I don't rip. <laughs> no. I get that. I do get that. <laughs> no. Well, I'm delighted that you're, you've got a box full of, of children's books yet to be uh, published. So none of them have been published yet. No. They've been used in the classroom already. Yes. Okay. So they, so you've already run your, you know, market test. Oh, yes, I've done my little road test on them. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So we know that they work. They just need to be published. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited that you're going to go into, not that I want you to stop writing poetry. Please don't. But uh, excited that there's going to be more Linda spread around. <laughs> well, thank you. I guess that's why when I first asked how, uh, how you were doing, of course, with our situation, what's going on right now, I'm not even quite sure what to call it anymore. You know, the situation we find ourselves in. Um, yeah, I'm so tired of hearing challenging times. Yeah, yeah. Certain. I know. I'm doing okay. Well, that's why I said your your comment was that you've been incredibly productive, and I'm so excited to hear that. Thank you. Yes, I, I'm with I you like about hearing about the challenging times. I must admit, I'm incredibly spoiled during these challenging times because I have all of my children home with me and usually that only happens for two weeks in the summer and it costs me thousands in plane tickets to bribe them to come. So I this is you. very exciting that they're all with me for this time period. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Now if someone wanted to start writing poetry I would guess that you're not going to suggest they start with the roses or red bit. What would you suggest? If somebody wants to write poetry, I would tell them to read poetry. Ooh, yes. I would tell them to read good poetry, what they consider to be good poetry, what they consider to be bad poetry, long, short, what, just read it. And I would also encourage them to start writing down in a, get a journal and start writing down things that they might like to make a poem about or phrases that they hear that catch their interest, the beautiful language. So it, to be, you have to be aware to write poetry. Yes. And beautiful language is so important. So much more so in poetry than, I mean, we would love beautiful language in all genres of, of writing, but in poetry, yeah. every word and every syllable has to sing, doesn't it? Yes, it has to, it has to make music, <laughs> it does. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of words. When, when someone is writing 80,000 words for a, a novel or something, not that we don't want those words to be well chosen, but once we pare it down to a poem, it's so much more important that the words, the very syllables are, are caressed and planned in such a way that they do sing. Indeed. I'm no Shakespeare expert, but I know this much about Shakespeare. Sonnets. He planned his sonnets so that when you would naturally take a breath, there was a break in the line. He planned his sonnets 
so that syllables either went up or went down. He was brilliant. And while I really don't always understand him, I recognize that genius. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Who are some of your favorite poets? If we're going to start reading, because if we're gonna have, we have to read first before writing. So who should we be? Well, reading? I'm. I you know it's funny. I, I my lists are never like anybody else's lists. If you ask me for my favorite books, my I'm not like anybody. I mean, I'm just you know people say, have you read this? Have you read that? No, <laughs> I, I don't know. So, so my favorite um, my favorite poets um, are Maya Angelou. Because oh. I have met her, I have hugged her, I have heard her speak. She was amazing. Um, Robert Frost, who was a teacher on the campus of the college I went to way before I got there, but um, but it was like his vibes were there. Um, a man by the name of Lee Bennett Hopkins, who just passed away last year, who I followed him from 1973, my first book that I ever got that he wrote called Pass the Poetry, Please. And this is just an aside, but I picked up the book about, I don't know, two two years ago. And I was going through my book to see if I could part with anything. And I read the first chapter and realized that the man was still speaking in vital English now, the way he felt about poetry. Really? So I contacted him on Facebook and we became friends. And one day I got up the guts to ask him how to, he's got more anthologies. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most anthologies ever published. I asked him how to get into one of his anthologies and he invited me to submit poems to him. I submitted poems and he wrote back and said, I would like you to write back again and tell me everything about each poem, why you wrote them. <gasps> and I wrote back and I, I put the poems in book order genre or not genre order but subject order and and my reasons and he wrote back and said dear one i'm pleased to tell you that i'm going to be approaching you to send a poem in for a specific anthology so he did and i we had a five or six week coaching session wow. last last spring into yes last spring and he passed away oh. in in the summer However, before he passed away, he said, you're going to be in this anthology. It's going to be published by this press, and it's going to be about two years. And here are the terms. And he gave me the terms. It was like a lifelong dream come true, because I love oh. this man. I met him in the East. So he's one of my favorite poets, and he's also one of my favorite passionate poets. Um, so that's a dream come true. It'll be out probably next year. Um, so, and then there's Joyce Sidman, who's this incredible poet scientist who wrote, who writes poetry, incorporating real facts about things, but in such a beautiful way. Um, she wrote about a, a, a great horned owl in a book called The Dark Emperor. And she wrote about prayers and poems and spells in a book called What the Heart Knows. And her poetry is amazing. Um, Marilyn Singer, who is a local uh, author, Mirror, mirror. She does reverso poems. So you start it going one way and then you get to the middle and then you reverse and go the other way. Oh, yes, yes. And it's the same words going both directions. She pioneered that. Oh, um, no. Mark Irwin. Pardon? That's fabulous. That's, that's, I can't it imagine how, how you write that. I'm, I'm studying her to learn. That's how you learn. You study the master. So, so uh, Mark Irwin is another one. His heart, his books just make, my heart sing. Um, and Jane Yolen, who is a multi-genre children's author, uh, but an incredible poet. So I, I love everything she does. And there's this guy from England who is a priest by the name of Malcolm. I believe the pronunciation is Gweet, but it could be Geit. Um, he, he posts uh, lots of sonnets and he's amazing and he makes me cry. So I, that's a good, if he makes me cry, that's a really good, uh, measure <laughs> <laughs> you know what i love that i'm hearing in you is the community that poetry is a community of people and that you have been so fortunate to communicate with to meet 
to be included among these people, that it's really like their own. Is that the way it works? <laughs> it's, I feel right now, like I'm at the edge of the circle of these incredible poets and, and I'm starting to feel like I belong in the circle. And it's just a wonderful feeling. Oh, I've, so there's local poets that I just love to pieces. And I have been very fortunate to know them and love them. The local, po the lo Nassau and Suffolk County Poets Laureate, um, incredible people. So I feel like I'm at the edge of that circle, just, just being in, you know, I've been invited in and I'm, I'm still standing there speechless, which is hard for you to imagine, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is well deserved that you go into that circle, Linda. Absolutely. Well, thank you. What an exciting feeling that must be to see it like right over the crest of the mountain and you're standing there at the pass, looking in, walking in, or road tripping in, as the case may be. Take <laughs> <laughs> road trips for sure oh my goodness i love and I, I would love for you to share the story behind the book road trip road trip is linda's new book that um won an award and came out last year and as a lover of road trips i was thrilled to pieces but the story behind the story is just amazing well thank you do you want me to tell that now sure do you mind because okay. i think it's all I think it's a great no, story for getting our poets thinking about how to write because you have such a process right there in your story. Um, Local Gems Press runs a contest every year and it is 30 poems in 30 days in the month of April and you have to write 30 poems in 30 days. You can pick the choice. You can choose your genre, not your genre. You can choose your subject. You can choose which way you want to go with it, but it all has to come together within 30 days. Okay. So I've been entering the contest for several years and won some honorable mention uh, with the first two books and I wanted to try again. So I tried again and um, I got this idea. I knew we were going on a road trip and it was the first time I'd been on one since the sixties. And so I was very excited about it and started taking notes just as we stopped in places. If, or if I was driving, I would say, David, please write this phrase down, a ribbon of birds or um, whatever it was. And so we, I just kept notes. And then when we got back, we went in February. When I got back, um, I decided to write, use that to write with. And that's what I did. And I linked them geographically by how we went out and how we came back. Well, and, and so many things in your telly of that, keeping a notebook, even if it's a phrase, and that phrase, a ribbon of birds, is definitely worth writing down, isn't it? <laughs> but, yes. but living your life, if you want to write poetry, you need to experience life, is what I'm hearing from you. And write things down as you're in the experience, so you can think about them later. Is that right? Yes, and I will things that my other beloved professor, Judy Baumel, taught me was um, if you're sad or you can't write or you're blocked, take a walk around the block. So, for instance, this morning, um, I was out for about an hour before the interview walking, and I found something I hadn't seen before, which was a huge rock with a lot of little rocks on top of it, not in any particular formation. So I took a picture of it. That's going to show up in a poem. Um, if I smell bacon or fire or something in the morning, I, it goes into my head because in a poem you want to add sensory details so the person can be with you. So you, you can be living in a place where you can't get out and you can look out your window. We went to a drive-by birthday party yesterday and the poet in me noticed at the end of the block there was a neighbor with the door open sitting in her wheelchair watching the party, watching the parade. So that was a part of it. Absolutely. What, what I'm hearing, what, what you're saying that's so important is to keep your eyes open, but to things that other people might not be noticing. Yes. 
Yes, there were these two little boys, for instance, there were these two little boys on bicycles at the top of the hill. And as the cars started to go by, they looked at each other and one said, wow, whoever that is has a lot of friends. It's going to die because, you know, that's the thing now. You go by and you have a birthday party on wheels. Right, right, exactly. And the popular people, I guess, cause a traffic jam. Oh, well, she did. (laughs) (laughs) It was cool. But, you know, somebody else would have just noticed, for example, the birthday girl or the cake or that house. But you were in the moment when you were still cresting the hill and seeing the surroundings and seeing a neighbor three doors down who was in a wheelchair. You were taking in the whole scene, not just the particular scene. That's just so beautiful. Did you learn to be so observant? Or was it part of you always? I don't know how to answer that. I think both of my parents were very observant and both of my parents pointed things out to me. Um, and, and so that's how I am. And when you're a teacher, you've got to be highly observant. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it wouldn't be surprising to me to learn that I had something that was undiagnosed in the, in the back in the day. <laughs> my attention was all over. So for instance, I had a principal who was, unschooled and what to do in a library, but he sent me six different classes during a very hot day in April or May. And I had air conditioning and I had six places to put classes and I was still able to teach mine and let everybody else go find a corner. Wow. And I going on in the whole room. So I notice everything and I don't know, it's just maybe the way I'm wired. And, and by the way, thank you for giving permission to just literally millions of people just now by saying that you know you may have some undiagnosed your mind is all over the place and yet you're sitting here as a not just published but award-winning poet so talk about taking all of that is you and making it into art and i can't thank you enough for that for so many people thank you i i just look at the people who didn't know <laughs> one of my parents told me that her daughter was um adhd or dyslexic dyslexic and she told her to listen really hard she told her to continue to listen really hard because that was going to be important in her future and and so don't miss anything and then when you read it you'll be able to remember it better when you see it on the page i think that was brilliant advice i mean the daughters grew all of her kids grew up to be amazing people you can use what you have. I'm glad I didn't know what I had. I'm glad I just figured out what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, you're right. Back in the day, we didn't know what we had, but you learned what to do with it. And now you've done that and continue to do that. And what a gift you're bringing to the rest of the world for that. That's amazing. We should all be so fortunate as to learn to work with what we've got, you know? (laughs) Too many people are trying to change themselves. And I guess what I'm hearing from you is that you are enough and your gifts are worthy and your gifts are very worthy. And I'm so thrilled. I appreciate that. Um, I feel like my, my, I was thinking about uncertain this morning and thinking about how, for me, my certainty is, is in my faith. And so, that's why I can walk and see the silver lining. That's why I can do a lot of the things I can because that's the way I'm wired as well. It was, that was something that was brought up and, and encouraged in me as well. So um, I appreciate my parents so much. That's wonderful. And your students, now you're a teacher for, well, you're still a teacher. So 40 years of, of elementary school and public library service. And I'm one of those people who thinks librarians should just take over the world because you obviously know everything. If you ask a librarian, they know everything. Well, and and that's actually a misnomer because librarians just know where to find everything. (laughs) Well, that's good enough nowadays. That's as good as knowing everything. I mean, technically, we're all walking around with the equivalent of you know, the Library of Congress and all of human civilization in our pocket, but that hasn't made any of us smarter just because we have it. It blows me away how many people ask questions 
that I answer in three seconds or less and post the answer on their page because I looked it up. And right. I mean, that started at the kitchen table too. My father, we would say, dad, what does this mean? And he'd say, go get the dictionary. <laughs> so we had, we immediately knew how to use the dictionary because right, right. he would say, look it up. <laughs> I had the Funkin' Wagnalls encyclopedia in 26 volumes. I believe it. And, and had to look it up. But now yep. you're so right. How many people ask me things and they actually sit there? I'm not really sure. What do you think is larger, Spain or Uganda? Why don't we look it up? My favorite thing that I saw this lately was a meme that somebody put up. And I think they put it up in jest. Mm -hmm. But the responses indicated that the people did not know what they were looking at. And it was a it was a picture of people on the beach, and the meme read: "The governor of Arizona opened up all the beaches for people to for for, for people to go." And I I just <laughs> nothing, but I picture I found a map of Arizona and I posted it. <laughs> people were going, "Oh, <laughs> my uncle lives there." He goes, "Well, there are some lakes." I said, "No, no, this was an ocean beach picture." Right, right, right. No clue. People had no clue. <laughs> no clue. No clue. And, and, and what's even funnier is that Arizona has a lot of sand, too, so the governor couldn't very well close the sand. No. <laughs> it's everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. Um, as, a, as a poet, uh, just like a marketing writing question, you know, so many people want to sell their book. They are writing a mystery, and they want to know how to sell more mysteries. They're writing memoirs. Is there a way to sell poetry? I mean, I love it. Is there a special market for it? That's a really tough question. Um, I think if, oh my gosh, I don't know how to turn that off. <laughs> They're just here to haunt you. Okay, let me oh. find you again. You hit something. That's good. Yes, I turned off Google. Oh, that did it. You know, the I mean, world has been looking to turn off Google for quite some time. Yeah, but it's just not fair. I, it's just not fair. I, whatever. You'd think they'd get the message. Unless <laughs> one Reader's Digest, you know? I, and I would also think that Google is smart enough to figure out by the third time that you weren't interested. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so um, selling poetry. Yes. Um, I am a poetry lover, so I buy poetry. Oh, good, um, good. <laughs> but when I am seeking to sell my, I'm not really, I can't say that when I wake up in the morning, I'm not, I'm thinking about how to sell my book. I suspect I should be thinking about that more. Um, <laughs> but you, whatever, I, Road Trip was very popular in, in, in the, um, launch that I did and in the subsequent readings that I did of it locally um, because everybody's most everybody's been on a road trip some right. people wish they could go on a road trip and um, a lot That's of people really love poems about Winslow Arizona because we actually went to the place yeah. where the song was about there's a park Andy called standing on a corner <laughs> park in Winslow Arizona with a red Pick with a flatbed Ford outside on the street. <laughs> love it. Love it. Yes. So, I mean, my advice, if you want to sell a book, I mean, the way I see other poets do it is they do, especially uh, children's poets, they do school visits. Mm. They do book fairs. They do books. They do um, bookstores. They do um, podcasts. They do blog posts. They do all manner of things. There is a, a children's author by the name of david l harrison he's been he's been writing children's books and poetry for well over 50 years and he's winning awards and he's got a school named after him he pushes every day he publishes something on his blog every day wow and so i guess it depends on your drive yeah that's true very true so you study what's selling if that's your ambition, you study what's selling, you study who's selling it and where they're selling it. And that's just like, if you want to know what a publisher will publish, you look at what their catalog says they publish. And if they say, we do not publish anything occult, you don't send them your occult poem. <laughs> you know? no, 
I, I so love that you said that because you'd be amazed how many people don't know that. And that's wonderful that you just said that. <laughs> so you. true. So true. But, but one thing you mentioned, and, and this I think lends itself to poetry even more than other genres, are readings. You know, poetry is meant to be heard too. Yes. And if, if someone wrote, you know, a novel, and very often I'll of course be at book launches and such, and a person will read a chapter, but it's not the same as a poetry reading where I'm there to hear the actual poetry. That's wonderful. And again, it matters who's reading it, how they're reading it, and what they've chosen to read. I mean, I would take novel um, and like The Trumpet of the Swan by E.B. White. Mm -hmm. I would take a novel like that and pick a chapter and leave them hanging. Mm -hmm. And if they wanted to know what was going to happen next, they had to take out the book. <laughs> so that's how you do that. And then, and that's how you do that in a book reading. You pick a chapter that's going to leave people hanging. With poetry, I think it's the same thing. You have to, A, read it to yourself, because if you don't, you're going to possibly trip over words or find awkward phrases or awkward combinations of words that would make you want to go revise your poem. Right. Um, so it's important to read it out loud, no matter what your genre, so that you can hear what it sounds like and hear yourself reading it to see if it reads well out loud. Makes sense. Makes sense, because it is, it is a gift to your audience that they're hearing it. So you want to make sure it sounds good being read out loud. There is a lovely poet on Long Island who reads incredibly well. I mean, his poetry is, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. His poetry is beautiful, but he reads like he just had five cups of coffee, too fast and very animated. Right. And I love him dearly, but his readings are exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you have to be willing to take some feedback and listen to it if you get it. Makes perfect sense to me. Absolutely. Um, final words to our budding poets out there. What can they do today, shall we say, so that they can get started on their first poems? Today, I would suggest um, one of the most um, common ways of starting a poem. Um, look at George Ella Lyons' Where I'm From. Um, she wrote that poem about where she was from and she, there's a template for it online, but it's, a, it's a list poem, but it's a beautiful list poem or, or she could, or, or you could go outside and make a list of things that you think are beautiful. Or, I mean, that's what I would do. I, the first I have noticed, uh, I took a picture of a stand of irises the other day with a pink, there were purple irises with a pink tulip in the middle. Oh, my thought, God. oh, someone that stands out in the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Go write down things that you notice. Go out with a notebook and write down things that you notice. Fantastic. That's what I would say. That's one of the things I would say. Well, it's a beautiful day out today. Um, hopefully, when, when our listeners are listening, since they could listen, it could be 20 degrees for all I know. But go outside, take note of things, write things down, which, of course, starts with, Get yourself a nice notebook and a pen so that you can dedicate or, a space. I would agree. And I would also say that if you've got an old school notebook that you don't want to, you can't go out and buy yourself something oh, because of the restrictions, use what you've got. Absolutely. Or since we carry our phones every place, there's a note feature and you could write poetry right on the notes feature. Yes. Absolutely. Some people do write on their um, phones and some people dictate poems oh, on their phones. That's a great idea. You know, all of our phones do have that, you know, speak to it and it'll write it in text if you're not very good at typing with the one finger. <laughs> <laughs> but don't send it off unless you read it. <laughs> I also, my husband have to, to bring me a copy of the new book. So there's road trip. 
Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Yes, because I have I have the other two and and I, I want to reach across the screen and I'll grab a copy of that from you, Linda. <laughs> oh, but I, I could send it that way. Oh, I know. If I could just reach from box to box here right across the screen and get a copy, that would be fabulous. Well, yeah, I, that's Star Trek. I know that's a Star Trek thing. Next time. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining us for writing and for sharing how our viewers and listeners can get started on their own first poems. And Linda, where can they find you in your poetry? Um, I'm, uh, the book, all my books are under Linda Trott Dickman on Amazon. And they're also in, uh, on Barnes and Noble website. Um, and you can also find me on Facebook under the same name. I'm really accessible. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're and, welcome. And to all of our listeners, happy writing. Good luck. And you could reach out to Linda. And uh, if you dictate it and you do a good job, send it over. Let's get started with some poetry. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for joining us for Once and Future Authors. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Reviews help other interested listeners to find the show, so your review could launch new books every day. Thanks again for joining us, and happy writing. <laughs>